Welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into the exceptional leaders at Bain and spotlights the incredible work they're doing at the firm. You can look up their bios online, but that only scratches the surface of who they are. We share the stories of how and why they are the leaders at Bain they are today and why they're truly extraordinary on this podcast. Joining me today is Darcy Donnell, a partner and leader of our global customer strategy and marketing practices, and she's based in our Chicago office. She's also a longtime good friend of mine, and I'm glad to have her on the show today. Today, we'll be talking with Darcy about her journey at Bain, her multiple leadership roles, and how she built her own Bain along the way, and our customer experience practice and how her expertise and the expertise of the firm are supporting our clients. Darcy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Keith. It's so much fun to be here. Now, Darcy, we always start with people's backgrounds because LinkedIn doesn't tell the whole story. And it's very easy for people, I think, to look at where you are today and say, well, of course she's been preparing for this her whole life. It was a no-brainer when she started the decision to go to college and where to go to college. Can you talk a little bit about what that was actually like for you? Because I I know a little bit of your story, but I want to make sure we start there. Yeah, absolutely. I had zero exposure to the business world growing up. Blue-collar, family, agricultural family, farmers, et cetera. And it was really this desire to create income stability that made me even think about business. My dad was like, what jobs must people always have? And one of those was an accountant. Every company needs an accountant. And so I took a accounting class in high school that I just loved. I loved the ticking and the tying and the beauty of how it all netted out perfectly. And so I went to college to study accounting. And I was the first person in my in my family to go to college. My parents had not graduated from college. And so that was the beginning of how do I earn a job that will create income stability for my family? That was my goal. And so you want to be an accountant based on the high school course. How did you decide where to go to college? Because you're, you're from downstate, like not too far from Chicago, right? That's right. I'm, fr- I'm from central Illinois, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so, you know, because I grew up very modestly, um, I didn't apply anywhere that I couldn't drive to. That was like number one. And then two, where could I afford to go? I applied to three colleges. That's all we could afford for me to apply to. And then Washington University in St. Louis gave me the most money so I could afford to go there even more than some of the, the state schools in Illinois. And so that's where I headed. And sometimes that's all it takes. And so you go to Wash U and did you end up majoring in accounting or business or something different? I did. I went directly into the business school, which is one of the reasons it was appealing to me. I had a work study job and great mentors in that job. It was for the EMBA program at Wash U. I was their office helper. And the head of that program said, yeah, you can go with your accounting degree and work in audit or work in tax. But really, one of the more dynamic areas is in technology consulting. And each of the big accounting firms were building their technology consulting businesses. And so I ended up joining Price Waterhouse in their their technology practice, doing implementation of technology systems in accounting, (laughs) to be very precise. (laughs) And did you stay close to home for that? Did you stay in the Midwest? I did. I I went to Chicago. Many people from St. Louis and from WashU ended up in Chicago. And so to Chicago, I came. Cool. Now talk about your journey at that firm. First job out of school, you finally have arrived. You get your full-time employment. Was it what you expected? I mean, I, I can remember my first day so clearly because it was in this building that used to be called the Amico building, one of the taller buildings in Chicago. Our training was on like the 66th floor of that building. And I remember riding that elevator in my suit and just feeling like that's this is it. Like, this is what I've worked toward. I've arrived. I'm in the business world. I'm in this building. I can look out over Chicago 
And it was a great ride. I did many interesting things. I learned a ton. The most remarkable thing probably is that Price Waterhouse had a new client, its first ever for the firm in South Korea. And they were looking for people who were willing to pick up and move to South Korea to serve this client. And so I raised my hand and you know, I went from having gone to one other country in my entire life to going to South Korea. It's a bit of a shock and worked on a big IT implementation there for a year. It was transformative in terms of building my worldview, giving me exposure to the world, and it made for great business school essays. And how was your Korean when you left to go over there? <laughs> I could say hello and goodbye. And that's about it. It's a pretty difficult language. I had translators with me at all times helping us navigate that work. But it was just, like I said, it was transformative for me to experience another part of the world, have to be efficient and effective in new and different ways with clients. And it really sprung this whole global mentality that I right. continue to have to this day. Right. We've had several guests on, including Neil Shah from the M&A team recently. And a lot of the guests talk about how just taking advantage of a cool opportunity when it presents itself just changes their entire perspective and career trajectory. And this sounds like another example on that on that list. Absolutely. Darcy, you ended up leaving to go to business school. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Because by all accounts, you had achieved what you set out to achieve when you left home for college, but you decided to go back to school and sort of double down on, on building your skill set. Why did you decide to do that? I was clearly in love with business. As I was doing SAP implementations, that was a big piece of Pricewaterhouse's technology practice. It just started to feel like I was at the, I was deep in the weeds, right? Like I was in the basement and I just wanted to learn more about business, to expand my horizons, to imagine leading a business. When I was a kid, I was in like fourth or fifth grade. We had to draw a picture of what we wanted to be as we grew up. And I drew a picture of the world with a little girl standing on it and wrote, I wanted to be CEO of the world. Now, I had no idea what a CEO even was or did at the time, but like this notion of making decisions to steer a business was super interesting to me. And I had just the, you know, the smallest amount of exposure to that working for Price Waterhouse. And so business school seemed like a, a natural next step. It does. Although CEO of the world sounds like a supervillain title. <laughs> but I know you ended up going back to Tuck where there's a lot of alumni from Tuck at Bain. How was that experience? And was it, was it what you wanted? And, and did it give you that platform to transition? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was really looking for an immersive program, you know, and Tuck is probably one of the most remote business schools in the world and a community. I had been uh, this globe trotting consultant. I wasn't grounded in any way. And I was really looking for that. Tuck was a great match for that. And I met amazing people. I met my husband at business school and then I got introduced to Bain. Yeah. Now, before we get to Bain, what did you do during the summer at business school? There's some people we talk to who get admitted to business school because they want to do consulting. Yeah. You actually were doing it. Exactly. Exactly. I was the opposite. I've been a, you know, I've been a quote unquote consultant. And so I was really interested in a range of things. I mean, I interviewed for brand and marketing. I interviewed for investment banking. I interviewed for consulting. Right. Um, I ended up going to work for Dell Computer. Remember, this is 1998, 1999. It was the beginning of the dot-com boom. I could leverage the technology chops to get into that world. And Dell had 100 MBA interns that summer. And one of us, and that was me, had the opportunity to work in the office of the CEO and the chairman on a small strategy team. And that's the, the job I decided to take. Now, why didn't you come to Bain for the summer? Yeah, I did have a Bain offer. You're outing me there. And it was just it was it was just this notion that I didn't want to do consulting again. Yeah. But what's very funny is I showed up for my job at Dell 
And I sat in this set of cubes. They were all empty. And then like at 10 a.m. on Monday morning, the bank consultants showed up. So literally I was working right next door to all these bank consultants working for the CEO at the time, who was Kevin Rollins, who was a Bain partner alum. So it was a very Bain-like experience, <laughs> even though it was at Dell. We are, in fact, everywhere. Now, you graduated business school and then did join Bain right around the time I left for business school. So the dot-com dreams were starting to come down off their high. Why did you join Bain? I then started to appreciate, after being at Dell for the summer, the diversity of experiences I could get in strategy consulting and management consulting, which was different than the technology consulting I was doing. And I've always been one of these people that wants lots of options and doesn't want to get pinned down. And so this idea that I could join Bain and have all of that diversity of experience was super compelling. And I ended up going to Bain San Francisco because my then boyfriend, then fiance, now husband, was taking an investment banking job in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so... That's where I went. Now, like a lot of Bain people, not like me, you did transfer a few times inside Bain. So you went from San Francisco, sort of skipped over home and went all the way to the East Coast. You stayed with Bain, New York at that time? Yeah, that's right. Due to the fact that there was a boom and then a bust, my husband's technology investment banking firm essentially shut down. Mm -hmm. And so he got a new job in New York. And Bain was fantastic in making it possible for me to move from one coast to the other, frankly, in the context of September 11th, which was a super fraught time in our world and for anyone in New York. But we were able to make that transition. And then we were in New York for about two and a half years. And we were just feeling like we were kind of in a holding pattern. We'd gotten married. We were starting to think about a bad family. And I had a deep desire to come back to the Midwest. My husband had grown up actually in Iowa for part of his youth. And so we decided to come back to Chicago as I was a manager to start the next phase of our life. Now you moved back closer to home and you take on the first of several leadership roles you've had at Bain. Let's talk about some of the work you were doing there and your journey to partner in the Chicago office. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in those years with many of the people you've already talked to on your podcast, Julie Kaufman being one of them. So I did a couple of different things. One is I started to do financial services work in New York that I wanted to continue mm-hmm. when I, I came to Chicago. I worked on many different things, but financial services was one common theme. And then um, I started taking on some internal roles. I ran our consultant recruiting for a period of time back in the day, which was super fun when we had... 10, 11, 12 summer associates in the Chicago office. We now have three or four times that, which was very fun. And I started a women's program in Chicago as well before, again, Julie Kaufman came and reinvented the world for us when it comes to all sorts of diversity. But early on, it was very much a grassroots effort. And so I led that in Chicago. And then I became promoted to partner in January of 2007, really on the back of being a financial services partner and doing a lot of strategy and customer experience work. Right. And I know at that point you were a family of four and then got the itch to once again get the plane tickets in order and you headed to London. That's right. So my husband left investment banking during the financial crisis. Now we're, you know, moving from crisis to crisis. So 10 years later, we're in the financial crisis and decided to leave investment banking, which kept it untethered us a bit. And I was just remembering that experience of being in Asia and was just really keen to do it again. And we knew our family was complete. We had two kids. They were two and five at the time. And the firm, again, just absolutely created opportunity for us. We went to London. We meant to be there for three years. That's a typical partner transfer. We ended up staying for four and a half because while we were just really enjoying ourselves in London. And then my husband and I had a 
a side hustle. We started a fitness business while we were there as well. And we wanted to see that through. So we stayed for four and a half years. Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, they are really thriving here. I, I know on one of my trips over to, to London, I don't even know why I was there. We just went and hung out at the park all day and the kids were loving it. Apparently it's not sunny in London very often, but it was <laughs> that day. So you transferred back to Chicago, which was really awesome because, you know, we had just kept in touch a little bit while you were gone. You came back and then you came back into some big leadership roles as well, right? Yeah. And it's fraught a little bit, you know, transferring from one part of the world to another and then back again. And so I definitely had some anxiety coming back to the U.S. And I will say that maybe that was performance anxiety, which is always a little bit good. But yeah. things really started to open up for me um, within Bain in a couple of different ways. One is I started working on some very large clients. Yeah. You know, always focus on our client work, but then took on a new leadership role after actually in, in London, running London consultant recruiting, as well as our women's program there. When I came back to the U.S., I had the opportunity to run one of our capability practices, which mm -hmm. is the customer practice in the Americas. And so stepped into a leadership role in running our business as well. Now, talk about what it means to run one of the capability practices. We've had a few people affiliated with practices, obviously, on the podcast before, but I don't think we've really talked about what it means to lead and, and run a part of the business of Bain in that way. Yeah. And so, first of all, it's just probably helpful to take a step back and say, how is Bain structured, right? So, we have offices, we have industry practices, which are somewhat obvious, and then we have capability practices. Those are the solutions, the products that we deploy for our clients to create results. And so, of those capability practices, mine is the, the customer practice. It includes everything from brand and marketing through value proposition, innovation, go-to-market, and customer experience, loyalty, and employee engagement. So we kind of have that, that full piece. And what it means to run one of the practices is, is, first of all, do we actually have the IP and the tools and the capabilities to do what we need to do for our clients? A great example of that is in marketing. So five years ago, after running the practice for three years in the Americas, um, five years ago, I started to run it for us globally. About that same time, we acquired a, a media agency called Forward, headquartered in Minneapolis, because we knew in order to be relevant for CMOs, we actually needed to know how media buying, media execution, MarTech worked. And that wasn't a natural capability for us. And so we found this in Minneapolis, and they became part of Bain, and, and they continue, and we've quadrupled the size of it since then. And so first, you have to have the product and solutions, number one. Number two is you have to help people build expertise. So all the way from the consultant level through to senior partner, how do we start to give people the confidence and the credibility to talk to our clients around those areas of expertise? A good example of that in the customer practice is commercial excellence, B2B go-to-market. And there's a whole mafia, um, Keith in, in Chicago, yeah. who are really good at this, as yeah. you know, that really just say, how, how do you actually make the quarter? How do you ensure that your sales team is focused on the right things in the right way, et cetera? And so the other piece is just the affiliation and the expertise that you build as a practice. And then lastly, it's doing what I just described, making the number. How do you make sure there's awareness and consideration of our clients for the things we have to offer and that you help those client teams who are serving those clients bring those ideas to their clients and then deliver on them time and time again. Um, so it is a real job. Even yeah. though I still serve clients, it is a real job to run the practice. It's half my time. 
Yep. Now I want to come back to that in a second, but before we dive into that and some of the cool stuff that you've been doing lately, you did take on another leadership role and we had Erica Soro on the podcast a while ago. We also had Pete Forsberg probably two years ago when he was at Forward. So if people want to hear more about that, they can go listen to Pete's episode. But Erica was one of the leaders that we had on along with Julie, who you mentioned earlier, who is leading some of the governance of Bain as well. And I do want to spend a minute and talk about that because we don't get a lot of visibility into it. And we don't necessarily talk about it a lot publicly, but I think it is important for people to understand the leadership of Bain is serving on the one hand and leading on another. And we all sort of serve and lead each other at the same time. And you sit on Bain's nominating committee. Can you just give a quick blurb about what that is and what the responsibility is? Because it's hugely impactful to the current state and future of the firm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Bain is a partnership. And so we are self-governed, just as you were describing. And the way our governance works is we have a board which works with management, our global operating committee, to set strategy, to manage its performance, et cetera. Both are helmed by our worldwide managing partner, Manny Maceda. And then we have two other governance committees. One is the Conflict Promotion Committee, does what it says. (laughs) And then our nominating committee, which is the committee I sit on, which has a couple different roles. Number one is it chooses to nominate the various people who sit on those other governance committees, including our CEO, and helps manage their own effectiveness and performance. And then it makes sure that the most senior leaders of our firm are getting the right opportunities so they can continue to play larger and larger roles. And then that the governance, literally like the bylaws and the legal aspects of our firm are fit for purpose as we grow and expand our business over time. Actually, the other person who you've interviewed, Rebecca Burak, I'm about our private equity business sits mm-hmm. on the nominating committee with me. It's a group of five of us. Right. And so, Darcy, when you started that role, was it something that was on your long-term career goals of things you wanted to do while you were at Bain? Or, or was it just one of those things we said, wow, this is a neat opportunity. I, I should take advantage of it and, and try something different. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because you'd like to think that we're all so purposeful and have deep clarity about where we're headed. And, <laughs> right. and for sure not. I mean, the nominating committee, the way you get on it is actually through the direct vote of the partnership. So it's not an appointed, it's not something you can ask for. It is something that you are honored to be part of because so many of your partners think highly of your your business judgment and your commitment to the firm. And so, yeah, it came to me that way. It's It's been a fascinating new and different view of our business as I think about the resilience and the stability of this now 1,200 partner business and how I represent those interests on behalf of all of them. So Darcy, I want to go back to where you started taking us when you talked about your regional leadership role. And now that you run the global customer practice at Bain, let's talk a little bit about that for folks. Maybe you can give us an overview of how we're supporting our clients. You talked about the capabilities that we bring to bear, and you started to touch on some of the tools that we had and some of the capabilities we've acquired, including Forward and others. But let's let's give people a deeper dive onto what that practice is and what it's about. Absolutely. It's really evolved so much, Keith, in the last five years from individual consultants, managers, partners, having expertise, learning and growing with their clients to deliver results to a much more sophisticated, multifaceted business on so many levels. And so let me describe a few of those. Um, Number one is bringing in new types of talent. We talked about Forward. You can go listen to Pete's podcast. But we just started to recognize that the talent system that was inherent in Bain in the past 
was not sufficient to bring these new sorts of expertise and ways of working to our clients. And so a great example of that is in the marketing arena with Forward. The other is how do we bring proprietary data and software tools to our clients so we can get to insights faster and we can ensure that the results get delivered. A good example of that in our commercial excellence practice is the money map. So the money map is a software tool that ingests data about businesses, the way they spend, their share of wallet. Companies can use them to say, all right, are we pointing our Salesforce in the right place against the Mm -hmm. right set of opportunities? And so that's a data software combination that we put in front of our, our clients. The third one is is the things that we've built off our Net Promoter Score, Net Promoter System franchise. So everyone knows about Net Promoter Score. I'm sure many of your listeners have answered questions. Would you recommend a product to a friend or family member? Bain invented that. We invented the Net Promoter Score. One of our colleagues, Fred Reichheld, started writing about the impact of loyalty on business 25 years ago. Um, And we have two businesses, actually, that build off that franchise that are deeply embedded in our client work. One of them is called NPS Prism. It's a data and software product that benchmarks our clients against their competitors. And then secondly, NPSX, which is the training and content community of deep practitioners in customer experience. And so the practice has really evolved from how do we help consultants and managers get better at our craft to having all kinds of different talent join us, tools and capabilities and new types of businesses to add value to our clients in new and different ways. Yeah, I mean, listening to that list, it's amazing. Having done a lot of the client work that you're talking about early in my career, so mid-90s, early 2000s, something like MoneyMap, in large part, was the project, was phase one of the project. And now you're basically saying, no, we'll give you the data when we launch, and by the end of the first week, we should have all that done, and the rest of the project is actually talking about how totally different approach to things. Now, Darcy, one of the other things that I know that you've done is continued to add to the list and have added author to the list of accomplishments. You mentioned IP, that we have intellectual property and we'll publish papers and articles and things like that. But we also have a research team and everybody putting that together in a much more substantive way, sometimes in the in the form of books. How did that come about? And again, I'll ask the question, was this something where you said, you know, one of these days I want to be an author? And I want to do book signings and I want to see my face on billboards, which may or may not have happened. How did the book come about? It's another example of just taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. And so we'd written four books on the topic of loyalty as Bane. And Fred Reichheld has always been the anchor author on those. As we thought about the most recent one, Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers, we wanted to bring new voices to that conversation. So myself and Maureen Burns, one of our colleagues, joined Fred's writing team And it was, I mean, a whole new way of working. First of all, I had to write in full sentences, not in bullet points, which was a skill I had not acquired for some time. And then I did learn how to tell stories through the written word and bring new concepts to bear in a way that a reader could really appreciate it. And so writing the book was a whole endeavor that took me to new and interesting places. But secondly, being out in the world talking to people about the book has been the most fun. Now, I'm an extrovert and a globetrotter, so it is like absolutely in my (laughs) my corner of the world. And so I've been to seven different countries in the last six months in Asia, Japan, Korea, Australia, Singapore, all across Europe, in various parts of the Americas, talking to CEOs, boards, and leadership teams from one-on-ones with CEOs to I gave a keynote speak to a thousand people in Europe this summer talking about the concepts of the book. And it's been just amazing to see the reception and the way that bringing really sometimes edgy concepts 
to the business world, gets people thinking in new and different ways. And that's been just an absolute joy. Now, for people who haven't read the book yet, I've read several of the books that, that Bain has published. And one of the things that stands out, and you brought it back to mind for me, is the stories. You know, it's not sort of somebody just sitting there philosophizing about their greatness. A lot of times it's like, look, here's the concept, and let's talk about how this actually played out in the real world. For people who haven't read the book, you know, what are the two or three main takeaways that you try and land with people? Because if those resonate with people, I would highly encourage them to take a look at it. Like I said, our books tend to be a lot more practical and down to earth. And, and frankly, readable than some of the other business publications I've seen. Yeah, and I, and I read a lot, Keith, and business books are not like the chosen genre that I <laughs> personally often go to. So I totally appreciate your point. And it is chock full of stories. I mean, first of all, it is a reflection of Fred's career over the last 40 years being an absolute catalyst for so much of the business world's thinking on the topic of loyalty and customer experience, for sure. And that, and that part of it is just so interesting to be part of and to have the opportunity to spend time thinking about those things, writing those things down. So the major topics in the book are, I'll give you three major themes. The first one is this idea that in the context of stakeholder capitalism, while that is right, it is complicated and it is hard to communicate and it's hard to manage against. And so what we assert in the book is there's actually one purpose worth a company rallying around, and that is delivery of value for a customer, enriching a customer's life. And if you focus in on that, the other stakeholders get taken care of because employees are fundamentally critical for delivering on the experience. If you do those things, you will deliver for shareholders. We tortured the data, Keith. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> you know, it is true. If you take care of your client, if you take care of your customer, the math will work. You will be a profitable business. And that's not a trade-off. But just this idea of having a single stakeholder is a little counterintuitive mm -hmm. in, in today's world. So that's number one. Number two, this idea of earning growth. So we've been talking about net promoter score for 15 years. We're introducing into the world a new way of, of, of tracking that, measuring that with what we call the earned growth ratio. How much of the growth of your business is due to the fact that you retain and expand the wallet with your current customers and you earn new customers because your current customers say, this is a company worth doing business with. And yep. if you're tracking that and you're getting that ratio right, your business is just more profitable, more sustainable, more competitively yep. differentiated, all the beautiful things. So that's the second concept. And then the third one is really exploring this idea of referral and promotership. And so we often talk about that. And look, you and I are both, I'll give you a great example. We are both lovers of Peloton. I don't know how many of your friends you try to convince to use Peloton over time. Probably less now than you did but, three or four years ago. But pretty ago. much all of them, yes. Yes, exactly. And so how do companies take advantage of the fact that people talk? Businesses talk to each other. How do you create remarkable experiences that are worth talking about? Mm -hmm. How do you encourage a community of people to rally around your company to make sure it's successful? And how do you set the groundwork for a person to say to someone they know and care about, here's something worth considering. Mm -hmm. If that is a deeply personal and somewhat anxiety producing moment when you're gonna risk your own reputation around right. the referral right. of a product to someone else. So how as a business do you encourage that, take advantage of that? And if you do that well, it is just so reinforcing of everything about creating a sustainable growth business. So that's the third concept we spend a lot of time talking about in the book. 
That's really awesome. Darcy, as we start to wrap, I want to ask for your advice to people that are listening in terms of how they can get involved with some of the work that you're doing here and and what, what opportunities are there open to people joining Bain, either on the consulting side, on the expert side, or in some of our practice areas and business function sides? How can people get involved if what they heard today makes them go, wow, I'd really like to be a part of that? Yeah. Well, there's, first of all, I mean, just open your eyes and start imagining all of your personal experiences in the world. What's working? What's not? Who do you refer? Why? How do you serve your own clients? Are you enriching your own clients' lives? I think there's just something deeply personal that every single person listening to this, reading the book, contemplating it, and start to really open their minds. It annoys the heck out of my family because every time we go anywhere, I'm like, oh, they did that right. Ooh, listen to that. Like, I'm just living (laughs) my vain work in in my life. That's number one. Number two is I will say that the work we do in customer is so soul fulfilling, helping companies be good in the world and grow their business. And so if you enjoy that kind of work, there's a lot of opportunity. Our product and solution is wide. We serve every single industry. I would encourage people to express that interest and be part of it. And then the last thing I would say is, You know, one thing we know about our business is that the expertise required to deliver the work we do now is so multifaceted. You don't have to be a deep marketing expert or or know everything about customer experience or be a B2B sales leader in order to infect the the change that's required here. So our analytics team is super important. The technology and the innovation and design team, it is so multifaceted. There's literally no stone you can unturn that doesn't mean you can't be relevant and helping people earn their growth. Awesome. Darcy, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. The book is called Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers. I encourage people to check it out if they like some of what they heard today. But again, Darcy, we've been friends for a very long time. You are probably long overdue on this podcast, but I'm glad we were able to make the time today. So thank you. You're welcome, Keith. Thank you. Thank you.